Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Prendeville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. And today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Now, today we're going to continue the series that will lead us into the philosophical background that drives our professorship today. You'll recall in episode 71, we discussed the fallout of the American victory in World War I and the effect of the stock market crash. This all started with podcast number 61, which was about Western culture in general. And so if you're just jumping in, you'll want to redirect yourself to the beginning of that series as well. Uh, today we're going to examine the U.S. World War One and Two fallout, as well as explore the academic consequences from that. Uh, at the conclusion of today's show, you'll be able to identify and define how the 1960s were influenced by the changes in the American academic landscape in the 1930s and see the issues that will set the stage for the rest of the 20th century. Uh, this really is designed to help you avoid low-level political discussion and elevate your knowledge uh, when talking with your peers. Uh, as we have for the past 12 weeks, this series will help us decipher the background for the prime of the century. So the economic scene in the 1930s to set the stage for the 60s really was influenced by the European general fallout from World War I that Europe, France, Germany, Russia, really the entirety of the geography of Europe was shattered by World War I. Uh, both both politically and, and physically. And this caused a huge swell of immigrants into the northeastern uh, hemisphere of the United States. The Really, the, the coast primarily centralized in New York and Massachusetts and the northeastern part of what was the 13 colonies. And this was one in proximity to Europe. It's not easy to go through. It would make no sense to go through the Panama Canal and settle in, in California and all that. But these legal immigrants that came through Ellis Island really differed in uh, status. So you had a lot of Italians come over notoriously to New York that were kind of at the lower end of the spectrum that really their only outlook in Italy was either be victimized by Mussolini or uh, you know, be a part of the anti-fascist pro-communist side of uh, Italy or if you were even the rarer uh, pro-democrat Italy, uh, you know, life was harsh and there wasn't a whole lot of social movement for you in Italy. So a lot of laborers worked and sent their children over and maybe they had an uncle or, or a connection in New York um, and this is really the reason why during just after the prohibition era the Italian mob grew so quickly is that 
a lot of them owned the unions and the dock works and they could get, they spoke the language, they could get people certain jobs, they would help Italian immigrants really try to assimilate into the American life. You also had a whole lot of Jewish immigrants also into the New York and Northeastern area of the country. And this was due to the fact that uh, in Spain there was a civil war which had a relatively low Jewish population, but the remaining ones decided to leave during the Spanish Civil War. You had Poland was just recreated, but there was a lot of pressure from the German population or Germanic population there and the Soviet population there. Uh, you had a lot of anti-Semitic pressure that was pushing the, the Jewish people to leave and to move. And obviously we know what happened to Germany and during the, certainly the, the, the depression in Europe, but also uh, in Hitler's Germany, Hitler's early Germany, everyone knew about Hitler's anti-Semitism and, and Jews, a lot of them felt uncomfortable in Germany and uh, sometimes the Germans would even, the Nazis would even sponsor them leaving because they didn't want them. So you had uh, a large increase in Jewish population in New York as well and they were generally uh, of, a, of a slightly higher status, a different ilk and they would come over and take a lot of the middle to upper middle class jobs, whether it was doctors or lawyers or financiers or any of that, uh, those positions that, that do have a lot of social mobility. And the immigration boom in the late 20s, early 30s in the United States really helped, at least in the Northeast, helped those cities uh, continue to thrive and develop certain characteristics of their own. The, the, the modern New York was shaped heavily by the Italian influence, the, the Jewish influence, and in the, in the way that things are, are, are done in the cities, different accents started to, to develop. But the side effect is that when you had a lot of German and French immigrants that were also of a higher class, but who were either sent over by the German nation or, or fleeing France because of the devastation in the farmlands. These people do not, and the higher class ones in particular, do not think of themselves as Americans coming over. Now the, the, lower, the lower class Italians left because they don't want to be Italians. They showed up expecting to be Americans. They came here expecting to believe the same things that, that, that America believes in, be liberty and freedom and respect to the Constitution. They came over wanting to ingratiate themselves in that because they felt as though, and certainly when Mussolini took over, that Italy had not given them anything but their nationality. And to them that didn't mean a whole lot. If, it meant, if their nationality had meant a lot to them, they would have stayed and joined the fascist party in Italy. So for the Italians that came over, um, not really even depending on their status, they, they really ingratiated well into the culture and that's why we had plenty of Italian Americans uh, fight alongside us in World War II and during Operation Husky and our invasion of Italy, 
we actually sent uh, a lot of people who had immigrated over here, we had sent them over because they knew the, the language, they could help us translate, and the native Italian population was a whole lot friendlier to the U.S. Army. We were seen as liberators instead of invaders. And so uh, when the whole reason that, that, that we're going down this route is when I say this, I don't mean it to sound uh, anti-immigrant or nativist or any of that, but when a higher class immigrant comes over, particularly from France or Germany, and has no intention of adopting the American ideals or they leave one nation that might be struggling to go to a prosperous nation and not abandon their own ideals, you unfortunately get the side effect. Now a lot of them could teach, a lot of them were smart. Germany notoriously had a brain drain in the early years of the Nazi regime. We got Robert Oppenheimer, we got Albert Einstein, we've got a lot of people that would leave Germany because they either had Jewish roots or they didn't agree with the Nazis, the Nazis sent them out and they went to the freest country on earth inadvertently developing for Oppenheimer and Einstein helped develop the weapon that would pretty much eliminate fascism for good. Now, and in some respects even war. Now that brain drain has that those those scientists, those educated people have to go somewhere and and if they didn't go to England, they would go to the United States. Again, the freest nation on earth. And they moved into the universities. This started to change the academic scene that was in the U.S. as we discussed a number of podcasts ago in the 1800s was a very biblical teaching that our, our universities were there to, to develop science alongside theology. That, that our universities were there and they were rooted in biblical truths. But we have these new European style academics who have done away with that. And there's this huge influx, uh, influx of them into a lot of our Ivy League universities, be it Harvard or Yale or uh, even Brown and Cornell. And they wanted to do away with Christianity. A lot of them were sometimes outright communists. Now they hid that, they had to hide that um, in the U.S. as we'll explore, but they knew each other. And so it started to, to slowly create an environment that would subtly attack the U.S. because communism, Marxist ideals, are inherently antithetical to the U.S. ideals. That the two of them cannot coexist in the same country. However, it didn't touch the greatest generation. A lot of these people didn't go to college uh, from the outset. They were working on a farm or they had to work to survive uh, during the Great Depression and then World War II hits and they go to war, uh, war and they come back and they've got plenty of factory jobs, plenty of work for these guys who know what they're doing. So that didn't touch the greatest generation or taint them. Now it had a delayed impact on baby boomers because a lot of these guys right after the greatest generation or even some of them fought alongside of them. Again, we go to Korea for three years, we come back, we're 
worried about the Soviet Union, who has now developed nuclear arms, to mutually assure destruction with us if, if we were ever to, to use them or vice versa. So you have this hesitancy whenever someone starts talking about communism. And you, you have this development in the United States called the, the Red Scare or McCarthyism, where we were terrified about communists, and, and rightfully so, uh, about communists coming into and operating in the government. And there were KGB operatives in the government at the time. There were instances, the, the whole reason the Soviets ended up developing nukes as quickly as they did was because they had KGB officers work with communist sympathizers inside the Manhattan Project. And that's how the Soviets got a lot of the documents and they got their hands on something that tyrants should not hold. So you have this red scare going on. So that meant that these sympathizers within the academic scene could not outwardly profess their beliefs. So they had to hide them. Well, we did have, as we explored in the, I think it was podcast 69 or 68, where we talked about how the progressive movement and Teddy Roosevelt under uh, and up to Woodrow Wilson just before World War I had changed the American landscape and, and been enabled by a lot of the moral uh, biblical views from the Gilded Age in the United States to where they had put more regulations on the economy and had started to change the nature of how government was seen in the United States. So the communists decided to slip in with the progressives and mold and change themselves to call themselves progressive. Now, the whole idea of progressivism is to progress to this utopian view of society, but it's not inherently anti-capitalistic. It would be more of a mixed economy where you would have healthy capitalism and that you would allow businesses to interact with each other and play in the yard per se, but the government acts more like a referee. So you have some socialistic tendencies such as the antitrust laws. You have some socialistic tendencies as in you have a, a safety net, a welfare net, or an unemployment line. That isn't necessarily bad and that can, if it's not weighted too much to that side, that can really benefit um, a society. We've seen it work in uh, the Netherlands. We've seen it work, um, I'm sorry, and we've seen it work in uh, Sweden and Norway and Denmark where those, where those countries were built on, on pretty much completely free market capitalism, but then they had a very strong welfare state that would use the profits from businesses through taxation to create a large safety net. But it's not straight socialism. It's not outright communism. These are not communist countries. But the communists that came over here and melded with the progressives, their idea of progressivism was progressing the American ideas and the American nation into one of a communist utopia. That there would be no capitalism, that there would be no free enterprise, that the American government would change to enable equality instead of liberty. So where does this all go? Well, in the 1960s, 
in the late 1960s, notoriously, you have a lot of protests breaking out. You have anti-Vietnam sentiment on the rise. You have people not wanting to go along with the U.S. government, that, that the view has become that the Cold War is two superpowers looking for supremacy, not are we going to be a free, are we going to have a free future, or are we going to have a, a tyrannical future? And you have a strong celebrity influence, people who had access to this upper crust in society, notably Arthur Miller, who were outright communists. I mean, if you read The Crucible, if you read Death of a Salesman, if you or watch them act it out, you understand, you see all of the influence that Arthur Miller got from the people that he learned from. You see, of course, he also palled around with Marilyn Monroe, but that's a, another topic for another podcast. Regardless, you can see that our playwright and our, our, cultural, our cultural betters were starting to put little sprinkles of these ideas that, that maybe the U.S. wasn't the good guy, maybe the gov our government wasn't a good government, that, that it was some sort of evil power structure, something that needed to be dismantled, something that, that was just sending these people off to die for no reason, especially with Vietnam. You have professors who were notoriously anti-government, that they would attack our founding fathers as slave-owning, evil men who, who just wanted power for themselves and the British weren't giving them that power, so they revolted. That obviously disregards history, but that's the Marxist view of it. You have, notoriously, you have Dan Rather every night on the Nightly News talking about how evil Vietnam is, how the, and he was subtle about it, but how brutal the conditions were, and they weren't good, but it's a war. Nobody's ever had fun in a war. The anti-war sentiments got to the point to where we eventually had to pull out, even though, according to the uh, Viet Cong, they felt as though they were going to lose. The, the top brass had felt as though they had inflicted casualties, but that had we kept pushing, had we, had we taken that many more villages, had we been able to push them back out of the region into, back into China, that, that we would have won. But we had, as famously one of their generals said, thank God for the American media, that every night you had people right in their homes seeing the horrific scenes of war. That the policy of containment and the public going along with the policy of containment, that was over. That this was seen as some sort of horrific defeat and a pointless war. That would not have happened if we had stayed with our, with our biblical roots, if we had taught our children about the virtues of America instead of attacking the base of the United States, if we had taught that generation about the evils of the Soviet Union. Now, granted, we didn't have all the information on them that we did, that we do today, they just we still don't have all the information. We don't, we only have estimates on how many millions of people they killed. We don't have actual numbers. 
but we knew about their tyranny, but we knew about what they were doing in Europe, but we knew about the chaos they were spreading across the world. Yet children, we weren't teaching them to focus on that. We weren't, we were, we were busy in the 50s educating them about the evils of the Nazis, and for good reason. And clearly that worked because it is, we all know how evil the Nazis were, and that is understood. If we had done the same thing in the 60s with the communists, we'd have a much better world today. So from the influx of immigration after World War I, among the higher social orders that were sympathetic to communism and antithetical to the general run of people that were coming into this country who wanted to be Americans, who felt as though Europe had betrayed them, they, in their history, had been warped by these elites that came over and melded in with them and, and had sympathies towards the revolutionaries and Russia. And this sets the groundwork for what we'll explore in the 90s and what has happened today. And that will start to wrap up our series here on Crime Century.